KYW Original Podcasts. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. This week, we are focusing yet again on gun violence. And we're doing it after a two-year-old and a 10-year-old were gunned down. The number of census shootings keeps adding up. How do these firearms so quickly get into the hands of people who are doing harm? We look at where these crime guns are coming from and analyze America's gun culture. Then the impeachment hearings are over. So what in the H.E. double hockey sticks does it all mean? We give you a primer on the impeachment process. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now let's get to it. The focus is gun violence. In recent weeks, children, some as young as two years old, were shot and killed in Philadelphia. And the outrage is clear as we witness the aftermath of senseless shooting after senseless shooting. In recent days, a 10-year-old shot at a South Jersey football game died. And a police officer was shot in the line of duty. He survived so many guns. But where do they come from? How do we get them off the street? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is George Mosey. He is executive director of the Philadelphia Anti-Drug, Anti-Violence Network. We also have Pennsylvania State Representative Movita Johnson-Harrell. She is a four-time co-victim of homicide, and she's made gun violence one of the central issues of her work in the Pennsylvania House. Finally, we have David Chipman. He serves as the senior policy advisor at Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. He's a former ATF special agent. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. I want to start with you, David. There are hundreds of millions of guns on the streets of America. How did we get here? Yeah, easy access to guns, uh, the profitability of selling guns. Um, Yeah, and I think your estimate is accurate. I've heard hundreds of millions of guns. And unfortunately, um, many of them uh, end up in the hands of people who should have never been able to buy them in the first place. And they're used in violent crime. The majority of the guns are in a minority of households. Yeah, I've heard that it estimated that uh, 3% of, uh, 50% of the guns, excuse me, are owned by only 3% of the people. I'm not sure what they're preparing for, but that's an interesting fact. But, you know, what cities like Philadelphia struggle with is how do these firearms so quickly get into the hands of people who are doing harm to our communities, and how can we stop that? And Movita, I know you've seen this issue from multiple angles from the street, Um, having lost your son to gun violence and now from the state house, how do we begin to tackle this widespread problem when you talk about hundreds of millions of guns? We have a couple of real big issues going on, Cherry. We have illegal straw purchases, which in many instances is a girl and a guy going into a gun store and she's buying these guns for a guy that could not get them legally. We have the lost and stolen problem where someone can go into a gun store that can legally buy a gun and they buy them, they buy multiple guns and then they sell them and then there is no requirement for them to report them lost or stolen and they wind up in the hands of people who should not have them. The two boys who murdered my son could not have gotten a gun legally and had 
actually um, straw purchases where they had easily gotten guns on the street. Um, because there are just so many of them that, you know, people are able to get them. We have such loose laws around guns because of our outrageous love for the Second Amendment that we're worried more about protecting the Second Amendment than we are about the people in our community. And that's a big issue because we constantly have this debate about gun violence versus gun control and and what have you. And so, George, we had a 10-year-old die this week from gun violence. We had a Philadelphia police officer shot. And those are just the highlights. There is an effort to kind of at least a community groundswell to say we need to at least put a pause on this and see what we can do. Yeah, you know, your point earlier that the vast majority of the people who have the firearms are relegated to a small percentage of the population The same holds true when you talk about criminal conduct. Mm. The vast majority of the people who commit crimes represent a small percentage of the population. And part of what we do is to try to convince people that the notion that having a gun is, first of all, going to afford you protection or that you need it for a reputation is just wrong thinking. Yeah. And that's part of uh, the the country. That's a gun culture, right? Is that a gun culture issue? It absolutely is. And, you know, we can't emphasize enough that we're not talking about keeping guns out of the hands who are in a position to legally possess them. We're talking about keeping guns out of the hands of people who, first of all, don't know how to use them. You know, the interesting thing about some of the tragedies recently, especially with the really young people who were killed, I know that the people who perpetrated those crimes didn't intend to hurt an 11-month-old or two-year-old, yeah. or the 10-year-old. Yeah, and we saw that we had a lot of young people here, uh, David, that lost their lives in just the past few weeks, and it's been devastating to our community. But there's all we've had outrage over mass gun violence. We've had outrage over, because in every three months, we have like a, the equivalent of a mass shooting here in the Philadelphia area. But folks want to know, like, where do these guns come from? Are these People keep saying, well, if we curb legal gun, you know, purchasing and ownership, you know, these are illegal guns. It won't stop the illegal guns. What what do you say to that, David? So we do have data. We know where the guns come from. In Pennsylvania, um, last year, the police took 11,000 guns off of the street, 3,855 in Philadelphia alone. And just over half of those come from gun stores in Pennsylvania. And the other, just less than half, come from other states where it's far easier to get, in particular, handguns than it is in Pennsylvania. The most scary uh, statistic is that 1,500 of these guns are used in a crime within a year of being purchased. So that means someone is going to a gun store and immediately using it in a crime. So I think that we have to support and fund work uh, like George is doing. You know, how do we how do we get people to make different choices? What are the carrots we could offer to provide a, a different course in someone's life? And then we have to trust that some people aren't going to choose that route and fund law enforcement to be smart about preventing people from being able to go around and shoot people and, you know, harm, um, you know, children, like you point out. There's this gun culture we have. People love their guns in America. They really do. And I know that is a big part of the pushback, Movita, in trying to get policies and passed in Pennsylvania when you have a conservative majority. So how do you bridge that gap and, and get folks on the same page so that, we can stop the killing. One of the conversations that I had uh, initially, and, and I continue to have, 
Cherry, since I went up to Harrisburg, is that people assume that I have an issue with the Second Amendment. I do not. I have a concealed carry permit, and I actually bought an AR-15 in May of last year. Um, And the whole story behind that was that I didn't even have to show my concealed carry permit. I was able to buy it with just my driver's license in 4.5 minutes from the time I signed the background check until the time I signed the bill of sale. And that's the ease that we can get guns in this country. But my issue isn't with the Second Amendment. My issue is with the illegal guns that wind up in our community. My issue is with people who are suicidal or homicidal and and can easily get guns. And we can't even pass a red flag law because people are so stuck on don't take my guns away. So the conversation that I had is, look, I'm not anti Second Amendment. But you need to look at this from a different perspective, because some of the issues that affect my community affect yours just as well. Because when we talk about gun violence, we need to also be including suicides, which is Mm. two thirds of the gun deaths nationally. And those are happening in rural and suburban communities. And those are usually typically middle-aged white men. And I've been able to to get some friends to have the dialogue with me around these issues because it affects all of us. It just looks different in different communities. And that's the truth. I mean, and, and we recently had two major suicide, murder-suicide situations where we had, a, 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 or attempted suicide, where we had a woman uh, kill her children and her husband, and she had bought the guns just two days before that happened. And then we had another incident where a man killed his mother, his stepfather, uh, and his his stepbrother. I mean, and, and had just bought the gun and actually brought the gun home on the SEPTA. So what do mm-hmm. we, you know, that, that and that just happened um, very recently. And so, um, George, I mean, the flow of the guns on the streets, I mean, those were legal guns that were recently purchased and, and somebody was killed. But, but when we talk about the gun violence in the urban communities, where do these guns come from? You know, it's interesting. I used to be a federal prosecutor. And um, mm-hmm. one of the elements of proving that a case is worthy of federal jurisdiction in Pennsylvania is proving that the gun traveled in interstate commerce. Mm. It used to be that I could prove that easily by just noting the fact that there are no gun manufacturers in Pennsylvania. So it's interesting that guns are coming into Pennsylvania and they're being sold at the retail level. Mm. David's point is well taken. People go in, they buy these guns with the intent of selling them to people who otherwise couldn't have a gun or using them themselves to commit a crime. So the laws that we're talking about, which would try to inhibit that, are laws that would actually prevent criminal conduct. Not just gun possession, which uh, at least for the straw purchaser isn't illegal, but for the person who winds up getting it, it is. And if their intent is to use it to harm somebody, well, then definitely that's something we want to prevent. Yeah. And so now, David, if we shift our view towards uh, policies, um, I know that one of the ways that America and Pennsylvania and, and, and Philadelphia specifically, the shift has been towards a more public health approach. What does that mean? I think a public health approach is data-driven. It's based on evidence. Um, And I think it's a knowledge that um, you can't strive for perfection. It's more like a flu shot. Like, how can we just see progress? And what other cities are doing that are seeing progress that I would hope that Philadelphia 
start trying is using the latest technologies to help police investigate and respond to shootings before they become deadly. So gunshot detection technology is used in New York and Chicago and D.C. and not yet in Philadelphia, and it allows police to know the exact location of a shooting within 30 seconds. And that empowers police to respond to the area, pick up shell casings, collate those shell casings with other shootings, and identify the extremely small group of people who are actually shooting guns, which is what we want to get at. If you're just carrying a gun, that's a threat. But if you're actually shooting a gun, that person needs to be focused on immediately. We can't require departments to be on their heels and think success is solving a homicide. We don't want people getting killed, right? And so we need to fund police uh, to do a better, smarter, and an intelligence-led job. And that costs money. But the costs of gun violence itself far exceed anything we could ever spend on prevention, on the law enforcement end, or in the work that George is doing on the ground. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is a perfect transition to something that Movita has been working on in Pennsylvania to get funding for a smarter approach to preventing gun violence. And Movita, could you talk about uh, focused deterrence and, and what that is and where are you in, in convincing others to jump on board? So we actually brought focused deterrence to Philadelphia in 2012, and I was invited to participate on the pilot to be the moral voice of the community. And it, it uses positive peer pressure to target that small percentage that David just talked about, um, but to not just target them and make them priorities uh, when they do participate in gun violence, but to make them a priority in addressing those social determinants that lead to gun violence, um, providing them with social services. And we, we lack. Um, in thoroughly doing this model initially the first time, but even though we lacked in the resources that we provided to do the strategy uh, in 2013, we still had a 35% reduction in gun violence in the first year. So I had a unique perspective in that model because I talked to them about my son, I talked to them about my father, I talked to them about my brother and my cousin, and I got to see them transformed before my eyes and there were two boys who specifically said that they said when we were doing the mock call-ins and the meetings that they would not put down the guns they were going to die on the streets of south philadelphia they were two of the first people that called in for help so that just shows you they want out but there's no door we need to create that door so literally since this model tanked in 2015 cherry i have been doing everything in my power to get this reinstituted um, because those same two boys that they said was going to die on the streets of Philadelphia. When we had city council hearings in 2015, they came back and testified for the model to testify, to fund it, to give other people the opportunities that they were given to go back to school and to get jobs. And just and explain quickly, fathers. just explain quickly what focus deterrence is. So it, so focus deterrence is what we did in 2013, 2012 to 2015. Um, we will be doing group violence intervention, mm. which is a strategy created by David Kennedy out of John Jay College. We are not using the term focused deterrence because it turned into over-policing in the end. Um, so that's tainted. So what group violence intervention will do is uh, we are working with the city of Philadelphia, with the mayor's office, with the Office of Violence Prevention, with the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, and the House has actually made a financial commitment. The city has made a financial commitment, and the 
uh, Senate has made a financial commitment. So right now we are pulling all of the pieces together to try to do our um, launch in the spring of 2020, where we will identify that small percentage that David talked about, that not only will we profile them to see what their propensity is to continue to cause harm, but we will profile them to make sure that we are providing the social services that Mm. they need to address their lives to make them successful. And the one thing that I can tell you about the way that I've revised this model, I've been in talks with David Kennedy for years. We have Brian Lynch, who was the head of the Gun Violence Task Force, who initially bought it here, who is the lead consultant on this. We have five members of the original Focus Deterrence team who are acting as advisors. We are ready to do this. We are getting the financial commitments. And what we're going to do is make this a social service top-heavy model where we are providing them with with medical, with dental, with mental health treatment, drug and alcohol, um, PTSD, job training, employment. I mean, we have made this so social services top-heavy. The one, the first thing that I did was when I looked at David's model, I added, I, I asked yeah. the whole team, what can we do to make this more successful than it was in 2013? And we added two additional layers we're, we're going to hire a pro, uh, project manager that will guide this model, and then there will be two case managers. Because we talk about giving half these young men jobs. They can't work. They don't have life yeah. skills. They yeah. don't know how to get up on yeah. time. They don't know how to dress. We're going to have two case managers. We've already identified who they are. They are returning citizens who now have social work degrees. They yeah. are going to take these boys by the hand and walk them through whatever they need. I've created a discretionary fund in this model. We are able to provide pampers and milk if they need them, yeah. food for the families. They need clothes yeah. to go on a it's job hard, this and if you won't be able to buy it. Yeah, this is definitely like the a public health approach because it's a holistic approach. Um, as David kind of mentioned, and this is an expansion of a program that was effective. And so, uh, George, yep. when you hear this, I mean, this is a way to combat that gun culture, that street gun culture, is it not? And that's exactly what we're doing right now. I just hired six case managers, mm. and they're going to do precisely what Movita in- indicated. And I also hired credible messengers, people who have lived lives that are consistent with the lives that we're trying to reach So hopefully their voices will be heard. People will be willing to listen. And then what we've recognized about the population that we're trying to reach, which is also what Movita said, these are not people who know how to do a resume. They don't know what to say during a job interview. And once they get the job, they don't know how to keep it. And so our case managers will hold their hand. First of all, we'll bring them where they need to be. We go out to the street to meet them, and then we take them where they need to go to actually alter the course of their lives. Wow. And that's sort of dealing, that's the holistic approach, the public health approach. And I know, David, I mean, another avenue, because when you talk urban gun violence, the issues are a little bit different than gun violence in other places. But one of the issues is the caliber of of the weapon. And you've had some proposals about that issue as well. Well, certainly. Uh, the guns that I would face on the streets today if I was still in law enforcement are far different than the ones that I did two decades ago when we were dealing with Saturday night specials. I mean, recently in Philadelphia, um, a man with an assault rifle largely kept the entire uh, Philly PD at bay for yeah. hours. 
I mean, these are weapons of war. The AR-15 is the same weapon I carried on ATF SWAT team, and any 18-year-old in Pennsylvania can buy it absent a background check today. And so I think that when we talk to our emergency room physicians, we see that in those, um, you know, rare, ca- I, I'd say rare, it's more common that um, handguns are playing a role, but in those cases where a rifle is playing a role, the wounds are absolutely catastrophic. And there's a particularly threat to law enforcement because their patrol vests will not stop a, a, a rifle round. And so as we sit and, and talk about this issue, uh, the gun industry is just making more lethal guns. And they're pushing out this myth that like every man in America has to be prepared to win a gunfight. And it's just this fantasy that I know as a trained law enforcement officer that, you know, winning gunfights cannot be our public policy solution for preventing gun violence. We have to prevent the gun from ever getting in the wrong hands in the first place. And when it does, we have to treat with urgency targeting that individual to either have them give up the gun or they need to have an interaction with law enforcement. Yeah. And we've heard that. I mean, and part of it is, you know, we, we have the public health approach. Philadelphia, there's been a crackdown on people who fail to report their guns lost or stolen. But at the end of the day, we who should pay? Because when you start talking about money, if somebody says, you know what, if I screw up, I'm going to owe. Uh, if, I, if I'm not responsible enough to hold this gun, who should pay? Should there be buybacks where the government buys some back some of these guns? Should manufacturers be fined for overzealous advertisements? Uh, should gun owners be taxed? or forced to buy insurance if they're irresponsible. Uh, You know, Movita, are there other solutions besides dealing with the the issue that we could say, you know what, we're going to stop this and make people uh, be more careful with their guns? Yeah, so here's the problem right now in the House of Representatives is that the right, they're not pushing any legislation. That's just the reality. And it's been very disappointing to me. We We can ask for things like tax bullets. If that's what we have to do to make sure that pe- because they can't use a gun without a bullet. We have to do everything in our power to make sure that we are curbing this issue. And we got to continue to have the conversation that this is not about the Second Amendment. This is about protecting our communities. It's about the easy accessibility of guns that leak into our community. And anytime we're having 11-month-olds and, and 2-year-olds, I mean, it's, it's disgusting. What happens in this nation? And it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. And I will say this. I mean, we do see uh, we have a court case in the the U.S. Supreme Court that could possibly make manufacturers pay for the first time. We'll see what what happens with this conservative court. But I know that, you know, with you, um, with you, George, this week was a major week. Hundreds of men came together and it was more than just symbolism, was it not? It's what really has to happen. You know, I used to say all the time that if you're fighting a war against drugs or violence, the only army that can win that war is the people in the community. And what we've been able to do, what a, a number of really viable, uh, well-meaning, concerted uh, organizations have done is come together. My organization, the Philadelphia Anti-Drug Anti-Violence Network, likes to point out that the most important word in our very long title is the word network. We have to come together. If we don't come together, there's always going to be a weak link. There's going to be a weak area. Uh, there's no competition in this line of work. Uh, yeah. Everybody has to recognize that this is something that is beyond competition or notoriety. 
This is about saving lives. Yeah, and Man Up is part of, are you part of Man Up, your organization? Uh, my organization is part of Man Up. And Man yeah. Up PHL is an effort where all the anti-violence groups, all these groups that focus it on men have come together to say no to violence. I'm very proud of what our community is doing to stem a problem that exists primarily in our community. Yeah. And because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. I want each of you to give advice first to to gun owners and then to gun victims. What should we do to help shift America's gun culture and talk about our culture of saving lives? Having a gun makes it more likely that you'll be the victim of gun violence. Somebody wants to shoot you, they shoot you. Having a gun doesn't help. That's a myth. And so part of what we have to do is to help young men in particular recognize that their reputation doesn't grow out of having a gun. Their reputation doesn't come out of causing fear in the community. It really comes out of the respect that you get when you work nine to five, when you support your family, when you're somebody who the community respects. I I think what I would share as a gun owner myself, I think with rights come responsibilities. And I do believe I have a right to own a gun, but I also have a responsibility, uh, a responsibility greater than just following the law uh, to keep my neighbors safe. And so if, uh, you know, a person buys a gun because they can lawfully uh, buy it and then they carry it around untrained or they don't lock it up in their car so it's stolen, um, you know, they are complicit in this type of violence. And so I think largely the gun violence problem is for gun owners to solve by being more responsible. And that might revolve around some inconvenience. You know, it's inconvenient to go through an airport security, but I get why we do it. And maybe it's inconvenient to pass a background check, but if that saves my neighbor's life, it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Final word, Movita. Yes. I want to thank David for... um Everything you said, I learned a couple things from you, and I want to thank George for his years of being on the front line and the great work that he's done for many years. But there is no one solution to this problem. It's a multifaceted problem. we got to be very creative in the solutions that we look to address it. The one thing that I know that we have to do is in our communities, when we see something, we need to say something. We know who the shooters are in our community, and if they shoot once, they'll shoot again if we don't get them off the street. And the other thing is that if you know your kid has a gun, if your kid lives in your house, they don't have no damn rights. I'm sorry. Flip their bedrooms. If there's a gun in your house, and I understand that a lot of young people, people carry guns because of fear because all the bad guys got a gun so they have to carry a gun to protect themselves but david just said it that's not a way to protect yourself we have to get these guns out of our communities wonderful and if you or someone you know has been impacted by gun violence please visit our website at kywnewsradio.com slash flashpoint for a list of resources so i want to say thank you to george mosey to david chipman and to movita johnson harrell for coming on flashpoint and talking about this important issue in the news thank you Charlie. Next up, scratching your head, wondering what's the deal with the impeachment process? Whatever a majority of the House members say is impeachable, ultimately is impeachable. We give you a lesson and answer your questions with this deep dive. We'll be right back. If you like what you hear, be sure to stick around, subscribe to the podcast, and check out some of our past episodes. We talk with newsmakers like Youssef Salam from the Central Park Five, Lonnie Bunch, Secretary of the Smithsonian, and so many others. We've debated issues like maternal mortality and the Byron Allen 
$20 billion lawsuit against Comcast. It's currently at the U.S. Supreme Court. If you don't know what it's all about, check out the episode. Thanks all. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. The Newsmaker is the marathon week of impeachment hearings. The evidence-gathering portion of the proceedings concluded Thursday. The key question is whether President Donald Trump used the power and influence of his office to get Ukraine to investigate his political rival, Joe Biden. So what are the next steps, and what are some likely outcomes? We brought in Franklin and Marshall political science professor Dr. Terry Madonna, who's also an expert on the American presidency, in to give us a civics lesson. Terry, where are we? What's going on now is that there is an inquiry into whether articles of impeachment ought to be adopted by the House of Representatives against President Donald J. Trump. The House of Representatives has sole power of impeachment, meaning whatever a majority of the House members say is impeachable, ultimately is impeachable. The Constitution says you can be impeached for treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. But the way it it transpired when the Constitution was written in 1787, the founders did not believe that you had to break a law to be impeached. You could abuse power. Mm. You could act in a way in which you obstruct the activities of Congress. These might not be illegal, but impeachable is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives says it is. We've heard testimony from 12 witnesses. Now what? The House Intelligence Committee will make a report to the House Judiciary Committee, which would be responsible for drafting articles of impeachment if, in fact, that becomes necessary. And each article is like a charge saying that he did this, he did that, he did this, and this is why... We're exactly. Him. Each article is a charge. It doesn't have to be a violation of law. And they've been using this word bribery. We've heard it a number of right. times. And that specifically is enumerated in the Constitution. That's correct. Treason, bribery and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Bribery, again, the bribery statute, they define bribery more narrowly than the founders did in 1787. Uh, but again, it's whatever the House says it is, whether if they want to make an argument that it was a bribe, the president gave something to get something, but we'll have to wait and see. Will the House take a vote? Because we're assuming that they have at least 218 votes. Uh, what is the next step um, after that? Well, it goes to the Judiciary Committee. The Judiciary Committee theoretically could issue a report in which they have articles of impeachment, which could then be taken up by the full House. If passed by majority vote, it goes to the United States Senate that has the sole power to try impeachments. And then there's a process in the Senate for holding a trial. That took place with Bill Clinton mm. in 1998. Only two presidents in American history have been actually impeached. And there's precedent from 18 other impeachments, 15 of them involve federal judges and another president, Andrew Johnson. So there's precedent in terms of how the trial is held, but it's up to the Senate pretty much to decide the process and the procedures. Once it goes to uh, the Senate, will we hear more testimony? Will it be like the trials that you see on television or will they just simply use the testimony that was given at the House? Yeah, conceivably, there'll be a trial in which the president will have counsel. The House will name managers that will come over to the Senate and do the actual prosecution. When the president is involved, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, in this case, Justice Roberts, would preside. And there's a process that goes on. But 
the president would have counsel. Uh, the council would be able to present evidence, obviously, opposing impeachment. The Democrats in the House of Representatives will be the prosecutors over in the Senate. So this is a process that's taken place before. Yeah, this is the big question that I've had a lot of people ask. I mean, if President Donald Trump is impeached by the House, does it stop him from running again in 2020? Oh, absolutely not. In fact, if it goes to the Senate and he's convicted, if the Senate in its verdict, when it hands down the guilty plea, doesn't stipulate that Donald J. Trump is barred from holding an office of honor, trust, or profit, if they don't bar him, he would be free to run in 2020, whether he's impeached or convicted. There was a federal judge who was impeached and convicted in the Senate. He then left the federal judgeship and ran for Congress and got elected back in the 1980s. So now the Senate could, in its verdict, ban the president from running. Wouldn't that be interesting? Because he's likely to run anyway. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm, being, I'm being half serious about it, but... But you're on to something about what would happen. Right now, it doesn't look like the Senate would convict him. It takes two-thirds to convict in the Senate. Mm. So assuming that all 47 Democratic senators vote to convict, they would need 20 Republican votes to convict. I haven't talked to any expert who believes at the moment the Democrats can get 20 Republicans to vote to convict. In fact, right now, the numbers are three or four You know, Republicans who might get peeled off. Now, we're talking about this before the House votes for impeachment. We're talking about it before there's a trial in the Senate. You get my point. But right now, most people think he will not be, experts believe he will not be convicted in the Senate, which means then he's completely free to run. Because people are like, well, what is all of this for if he is impeached by the House, not impeached by the Senate, and is able to run in 2020? What does it do? Well, what the impeachment's about is the Democrats in particular. Remember, 82, 83, 84 percent of Democrats favor impeachment. This is, I'm talking about Democrats around the country. So Democrats who are in the House of Representatives, in the main, not all of them to be sure, but many of them are in districts that favor impeachment. So they're not in any political difficulty by going ahead and doing the impeachment. There are 31 Democrats out of the 233 that are in the House right now, 233 in the House, 31 of them are in districts won by President Trump in 2016, 10 of them in districts that Trump won by uh, 10% or more. So you could get a couple of Democratic defections, but most experts think they have the 218 votes now to impeach. What they haven't done is specify the specific charges or articles and then decide when they're going to actually have the vote to do that. The hearing should be over this week. They'll be off during Thanksgiving week, and we'll see what happens after Thanksgiving. So this could just, because uh, Democrats around the country want this to happen, uh, the Democrats in the House basically have to do that will, although yeah, well, it may not have one other... huge impacts on the president for 2020. Here's the question. Let's say they impeach him but don't convict him, and it's over by the end of January. Then we're talking about nine months until the election, right? Yeah. Trump is going to use it during the course of the campaign. And you heard in the course of the presidential debate, Democratic debate in Atlanta, Georgia, where Bernie Sanders, one of the four top candidates running for the Democratic nomination, who said, oh, it has to be more than impeachment. In other words, he looks like he's prepared to move on 
after impeachment's over and talk about the issues. So the Democrats are going to have to uh, frame a set of issues and arguments that they'll use in the course of the presidential campaign, irrespective of what happens in the course of impeachment. So the question is, does, how big an issue does that remain, you know, let's say eight or nine months after it's over, particularly if the president isn't convicted and not removed from office? Trump will use it definitely because he's called it a fraud, a fiction, and uh, a witch hunt. You know, he has a whole bunch of ways to describe what's going on. Yeah, the the numbers show that many Democrats want this, but it's very divisive. Right. Could it just exhaust Americans and <laughs> cause a problem for 2020? Because everybody's getting exhausted. You got sure. debates on the same night yeah. as you have yeah. uh, impeachment hearings. Yeah, oh, we could grow. Yeah, we could grow uh, weary of it. You're you're you're, cer- you're certainly right about it. And I tell you what, the Democrats don't want. Let's say they impeach him in the House, and it goes over to the United States Senate for a trial. There, Mitch McConnell, the Majority Leader, and the Republican leadership are going to be involved in uh, setting up the process. They could decide to hold the trial in January and February. Senators have to be in the chamber, buttoned down for a trial. When they want to be in Iowa and New Hampshire, the first two events to pick delegates beginning February 3rd in Iowa, and they're stuck in a trial in Washington. That's the last place they want to be. And remember, we're talking about Senator Harris, Senator Klobuchar, Senator Williams, Senator Booker. You get the point. (laughs) These are all Democratic uh, presidential candidates, and the last place they want to be is stuck in a trial in Washington when they want to be in Iowa and New Hampshire in particular. This could actually cause, force the Democrats to split the baby in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it depends what happens with the trial. Again, I don't think the Democratic presidential candidates are in trouble arguing for impeachment. Now, remember, in their own states and in their own districts, but when you run nationwide, it'll be interesting to see what the voters think. Right now, in the polls that get done, the average of the the average of all voters in our country is still not at the point where they've recommended impeachment. It's about 48% for impeachment, 43-44 opposed to impeachment. That's all voters. But Democrats, 83-84% of Democrats support impeachment and removal. But when you talk about Republicans, only 12 or 13% of Republicans do. So we're badly, badly divided on the issue of impeachment. Will impeachment actually hurt Donald Trump? That's a good question, and I don't, uh, I don't think so. I think his base of support hangs in with him, unless there's something that breaks that we don't know. I mean, obviously, the biggest question now is, was there a quid pro quo uh, with the new, in, with the new Ukrainian president? You know, did he for the security money that would go into the defense area of, of the Ukrainian government to fight the Russians? Was there a quid pro quo? Did the president say, I'll release the money if, 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 if you do an investigation into the 2016 election and the degree to which Ukraine was involved in meddling in it, and importantly, do an investigation into Hunter Biden's role as a board member of uh, the largest natural gas company in Ukraine, and why was he appointed and, you know, without any experience? And so that's another aspect of it that's playing out. So basically, unless there's more evidence, it's unlikely that impeachment will hurt Donald Trump. Well, yeah, I think Republicans will hang in with him. Then it's just a question of what happens to the relatively few independent voters are there. Right now, independent voters in most polls do not show 
majority support for it. But we're going to have to wait and see. The process is playing out now before the American public. And sure, the House Democrats want to get to it as soon as they can after Thanksgiving. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Dr. Terry Madonna, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Next up, she started a project designed to show love to lonely seniors. I saw people around during the holidays that didn't have anyone to talk to. How a local woman is building empathy between the generations. We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint KYW, and we here at KYW, we are all about community, and one Ben Salem woman is doing her part in making senior citizens feel less alone with a Christmas tradition. The project connects them to kids with compassion who write a card, sign their name, and give them to a local nursing home resident. Here to tell us more about the Caring Kids Christmas Card Project is founder Elizabeth Ross. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you very much. It's so nice to be here. So that sounds like <laughs> a really wonderful project. Where did you get the idea? Well, I was volunteering about 12 years ago at Christmas time in a nursing home, and I noticed how many people did not receive gifts or have any visitors. And it was very sad to see that. And I thought that I needed to do something to maybe help out a little bit. And the following Christmas, I contacted principals at the uh, local uh, schools, elementary schools, and asked them if I could bring in Christmas cards uh, for the students to uh, write messages and to sign, and I would pick them up and then uh, deliver them to the nursing homes. So we started off with two schools, and uh, the project uh, went quite well. The feedback that I got from the staff was that the um, – the patients enjoyed the drawings and the, and the tender little messages that were, were written on the cards. So uh, we continue to do it and have been for the last uh, 12 years. Wow. How many yeah. cards do you think you've given out to, uh, at this point? 18,000 cards. Yeah. Wow. So we had a lot of children involved. So wow. And what has been the well. reaction to the kit from the kids? Uh, the kids enjoy it. They really do. And uh, because it's a program uh, designed to teach children about empathy, how to put oneself in someone else's place, uh, especially uh, in a situation like uh, in a time of Christmas and how people feel. And just from being uh, in that situation myself, being a volunteer in the nursing homes, I saw the sadness, and I shared that with them. And I said, now that you're aware of that and you can do something about it, we'll send them a Christmas card. And they were very much on board with that. And I asked them if any of them had had a chance to visit a nursing home. And they said that they had visited a grandmother or grandfather. And they said that they remembered when they uh, saw people around during the holidays that didn't have anyone to talk to, that didn't have visitors, and how sad they were. And they said that the Christmas cards that they were going to write at the time that I had handed them out and we were talking about it, they were going to give these people the best cards ever. So uh, it has been well-received by the children as well, and uh, they're anxious to do that every year. And, yeah, because it can be really sad, especially yes. around the holidays, and this yeah. sort of like takes away some of that sadness. Mm-hmm. And so um, it seems like the program is going to continue. What's the vision? Well, the vision is to, uh, to expand the program even more. Uh, we have about eight or nine schools now, 
uh, had more, but a lot of the schools have closed in the area, the parochial schools and charter schools. So we're adding more schools and uh, uh, more uh, nursing homes and retirement communities. And uh, the way people can get involved and have a, a, Chris, a Christmas card program of their own is to just go to a, a dollar store, buy a box or two of, of Christmas cards, and have family members sign the cards, especially the children. And they can draw the pictures. Each family member might do two or three cards. And then uh, call a lo- nearby nursing home or hospital and ask for the volunteer department and ask if you could drop off the box of cards uh, to the uh, facility there. Uh, another way to get involved is to, if you have children in elementary school, uh, ask one of their teachers uh, if they could do a, a Christmas card project where children would uh, take 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, the parent could buy a box or two of cards, or the children could make their own cards. It sounds like this is something that anybody can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so how can, besides creating their own Christmas card project, how can people support you? I think the the way to support this idea is to get involved themselves, really, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of looking at different organizations that they also might belong to, the, the uh, parents, and do a, uh, in a group meeting, uh, do a Christmas card signing. And um, again, look to see the area of nursing homes and hospitals and, and drop off the cards. That would be certainly one way everybody can get involved. Um, the whole purpose, too, of the um, program is not only to benefit the uh, the receiver, yeah. the, the patient uh, receiving the card to lift their spirits. Um, Mother Teresa said uh, in such a beautiful way, she said, uh, loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty and how true that is. And um, if children become aware of the notes that they write on the cards and the interest they take in people that, that don't have it uh, so so good at Christmas time uh, and have that compassion, uh, they have that they develop the empathy. Yeah. And that carries over right into their own lives and their personal lives. Um, one, one example, uh, a little, little boy was telling me in fifth grade that he was walking by his brother's room and brother was in second grade and he was crying. And he walked in and he said, what's the matter? And he said, well, my best friend is moving. And the older boy said, well, where is he moving to? And he said, well, he's moving to a certain school that he mentioned. He said, oh, well, that's not too far. We can, you can probably see him on the weekend. And he said, and mommy can arrange times that you can get together uh, and see him. And he said, you know what, Jimmy? He said, if I, if my best friend were moving, I would feel sad too. So yeah. that's a, the, being the level able to of empathy. put himself in his little brother's place and uh, feel that emotion. And that hopefully carries over uh, as the years pass with those two children. You know? Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Please provide contact yeah. information. Oh, that's Ross 44 at Verizon.net. Well, wonderful. So I hope this becomes a movement, the Christmas card project movement, mm-hmm. and that people, you know, build empathy and send kind wishes to those who, who are in nursing homes and yeah. just send some little holiday cheer. Right, exactly. So I want to say thank you to you, uh, Elizabeth Ross, for creating the Caring Kids Christmas Car Project. And remember, everybody, you can have your own Christmas car project. It's not very hard. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. Mine is Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, email us or tweet us and let us know. As historian author Schlesinger once said, expelled from individual consciousness by the rush of change, history will find its revenge 
by stamping the collective unconsciousness with habits and values. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.